Welcome to episode 245 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Lauren K. Johnson. I don't know if you heard that in the intro, but this is episode 245 and I want to do something special for episode 250. And while I could do something special all on my own, I would really love to include you, my listeners, into the podcast. So if you could share with me what a favorite episode or story or just what the podcast means to you, I would love to share those insights as a celebration of 250 episodes of Women in the Military podcast. You can reach out to me on social media at all of my followings at airman to mom If that doesn't work for you, you can always email me at airman to mom at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear how the podcast has impacted your life. It's changed my life, so I can't wait to hear about how it's changed yours. And now let's talk about our guest. This week's guest, Lauren K. Johnson, shared her challenge of deployment in her memoir, The Fine Art of Camouflage. Lauren's decision to join the military was inspired by her mom's service during Desert Storm and the events of September 11th. Those two things led her to look into the military, and she ended up gaining her commission through the ROTC program, and she shared her experience of what it was like to serve in the military and deploy on a provincial reconstruction team and what coming home was like. I'm really excited that we got connected and I got to read her book, The Fine Art of Camouflage, and to connect with her and hear her story for the podcast. And don't forget that you can listen to Women of the Military podcast not only on your favorite podcast app, but also on Reefs Across America Radio. Episodes are shared on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. Tune in or Odyssey. Now, with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome, everyone, to Women of the Military podcast. I've been waiting all summer to do this interview because I got to read Lauren's book, which I have right here. Um, she was on a PRT. I was on a PRT. So I'm really excited to talk to her about her experience in the military, not just on the PRT. I'll be good and stick to my script. And welcome to the show, Lauren. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Oh, that's a complicated question that I <laughs> kind of wrote a book about. My mom served in the military. She was an army nurse and most of her career was in the reserves, but she was activated in support of Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm when I was seven years old. So she deployed for what ultimately ended up only being about four months, but at the time there was so much uncertainty around that conflict and her orders were for an undetermined length of up to two years with myself my older sister and my younger brother at home so trying to wrap my head around that now as a mother is just blows my mind but as a seven-year-old of course i was devastated but i also you know saw this this woman who had always been my hero who was you know my person go off and do something you know, that seemed very heroic and and noble, and then come back and get a hero's welcome. And that kind of built up this idea inside me that I didn't really recognize at the time or even in the the coming years until September 11th, when the swell of patriotism that swept across the country felt to me very similar 
to how it felt after Desert Storm and when, when my mom came back and it like unleashed that thing inside of me that had been kind of percolating there for, for many, many years. And um, then kind of through a series of actions, it wasn't like, you know, 9-11 and then I ran out to the recruiting office the next day. I ended up taking an aptitude test at school, the, the military aptitude test that, you know, many seniors in high school take. I was offered a scholarship. I interviewed and accepted the scholarship and then went to ROTC. So there was like this big buffer period before I actually officially joined the military. But the inciting incident, to use a, a writing term, was my mom's service and then 9-11. Yeah, I, I can understand that because I commissioned in 2007. And when people are like, why did you join? I'm like, September 11th. And I'm like, I know, there's like a lot of time between 2001 and 2007. But, you know, like, it took me time to like get connected and even realize like that I wanted to do that. And then I went through ROTC. So that's a four year commissioning program. So it was a process, but I I really understand that. And I read your book back in, I think, May, June timeframe. And so I was like, I'm not going to even look at what it was in it because I like to do the interviews like kind of blind. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I remember all these things. That you're talking about. <laughs> so you said September 11th and then you went through ROTC. And what was that experience like? Did you find like you're like you were in the right place and you felt like everything was where it was supposed to be? Or what was that experience like? Well, to be honest, I, I think for most of my life, really probably until the last couple of years, I have never felt like things were how they were supposed to be. And I've always just like, I guess I have a restless soul and I've just been kind of searching for something and not even really known what I'm searching for. Um, I think a, a lot of people can relate to that, just feeling generally unsettled. But I did love ROTC and it was it was a place where I felt very, very comfortable and like you know, th those were the people who I was closest to in college. I was at a small liberal arts college outside Los Angeles and um, came from the Seattle area. And there's a, you know, a, a certain kind of stereotype of people in LA. I know you live in LA too, but um, so this is in, in no way a reflection on you, but like, you know, the tanned and blonde and silicone and, and there was a lot of that going on at, at my school. And um, I just, didn't fit there in a lot of ways. It was a beautiful campus. Everybody around me was beautiful. And I just kind of felt like an imposter. And the the political climate at the school was also very different from, from what I was used to with my upbringing as well. Being a small liberal arts campus, the Iraq war kicked off my freshman year. And I was walking around in my ROTC uniform on Fridays, past demonstrations where students were drawing body outlines and, you know, women killed by U.S. bombs and, you know, calling people baby killers. And I just, not that it bothered me, but I wasn't like overtly upset by it. I just didn't really understand it. And I felt like they didn't really understand me. I felt like, you know, an all-knowing 18-year-old that I, you know, have a unique and powerful perspective on this because my mom served and because I made a decision to serve. And I felt like that meant something at that time, even though I had no idea what it meant and really didn't know what I was getting into. But ROTC you know, was among other people who also felt that um, for, for better, for worse. And then that just became kind of my, my safe space in a lot of ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I can really relate to that. 
So you you really loved ROTC. You felt like a little bit of a community when you were in a place where you didn't really feel like you belong. That I can resonate with as well. So when you got to pick your job, did you end up getting the job that you wanted to do? I did. Um, I ended up being uh, tracked as a public affairs officer, which is kind of like PR for the military. And again, I didn't really know what I was getting into. But when I first entered ROTC, I had no idea the job opportunities available. You know, you think Air Force and you think pilots. And of course, there's a lot more to it than that. And it was actually one of my ROTC cadre members who recommended public affairs. Um, I was an English major and he knew that I, I liked to write and you know, was kind of fascinated by storytelling. So he suggested I look into public affairs. I had to do it, it, my first year in ROTC. Everybody did a, a briefing on a career field they were interested in. So I like researched public affairs and did a presentation on it. And again, felt very like all knowing and holier than thou and just kind of got fascinated by this idea of, of telling stories. Um, most of my the writing I was dabbling in was really, really terrible poetry or you know, fiction, just like, you know, silly rom-com type stuff. And the, the journalism aspect of public affairs and preparing for that was kind of my first exposure to nonfiction and telling real life stories. And I, I just kind of immediately fell in love with that. That's really cool. Yeah. I love telling stories, as you can tell. I have a podcast. <laughs> But <clears throat> I didn't find it until after after I left the military. But I think that's really cool that someone was able to, like, point and direct and guide you into a career field that really could set you up for success in the future and just give you all these different experiences. So you got the job you wanted. Did you get to go where you wanted to go when you commissioned? Very close. So I actually... A weird situation. I was in a serious relationship with someone else in ROTC and we we weren't married, but we were planning on getting married. So we applied for a joint spouse arrangement and both requested Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And uh, he got stationed at Eglin. I got stationed at Hurlburt Field, which I had never heard of, but it's like literally next door to Eglin. They share a range space and everything. So very close proximity. Uh, then we broke up. So the, the joint spouse arrangements ended up, you know, not being joint, but I found myself on the Florida Panhandle at Air Force Special Operations Command, which was, you know, kind of the tip of the spear, as they like to say. Um, and yeah, again, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. This is kind of a theme of my life in a lot of ways. I think that's true for a lot of people, especially like when it comes to the military, because it's kind of like something that you can't really understand until you've been in it. I mean, the world's changed a lot. There's a lot more technology, so you can hear more stories and learn about it. But I think it's like you can't really understand until you're in it what it's like to be in the military. And everyone's story is so different. Exactly. Yeah, it's such an individual experience. And so much of it is based on where you are and when you're there and who you interact with and what your job is and just who you are as a human and how you absorb all of that. So yeah, it's like parenting. <laughs> you never know what to expect until you're in the midst of it. That that's very true. That's a good way to that's a good way to compare it because that is true. You read all the books, you get advice from friends and they like tell you things and you're like, I don't understand what you're saying. And then you're a parent, you're like, oh that conversation and now makes sense. 
it didn't make sense before, but now I understand why they were so tired. <laughs> <laughs> or you're like, what were people talking about? That's not my experience at all. So you, did you end up deploying out of Hurlburt? I did. Yeah. I spent my, my whole stateside career. I, I was in for a little over four years um, and that whole time was stationed at Hurlburt Field. So I had the the little all expenses paid vacation in the midst of that where I went to Afghanistan on a PRT. Yeah. And you said PRT. And if people have been listening for a while, like a long time, because you'd have to probably go all the way back to the first episode, <laughs> I deployed on a PRT. And a lot of the book is about, which I'll say, the fine art of camouflage. <laughs> it was about your experience of deploying on the PRT. And I want to talk like I want to I'm going to spend more time on your deployment because I have like a lot more experience. I think you were either the rotation right before me or right after me. I can't remember now. But even like though your your training was different, like at Indiana, it was like there were different things about like the things that you learned. And so I thought it was interesting how that part was like always adapting and changing. So let's talk about like going to Indiana to Camp Atterbury for the combat skills training. What was that like? And then lead into, and like the excitement that you felt going into the PRT. Yeah, I actually volunteered uh, to deploy with the PRT. And it was one of those things where I knew that I was going to be deploying kind of imminently anyway. I had actually gotten tasked twice with prior deployments and those got reassigned to other people for various reasons. So I knew that I was, you know, on the cusp and that my 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 number was going to be called. And um, I was excited about the prospect of deploying at that point, in large part, just because being at a special operations base, that was just how things operated. Like everybody was deploying all the time. And I felt like I wouldn't really be doing my part until I got a chance to do that. So I was anxious for deployment. And then the opportunity for a, a PRT came down. And I thought, you know, this is, I had read Three Cups of Tea by Greg Mortensen, um, which now it's, it's kind of kind of old news. It came out in, in 2007, but it's a, a memoir by an American mountaineer who climbed a mountain in uh, Pakistan and was like very disoriented, altitude sick coming down and the local villagers took him in. And one thing led to another, and he ended up dedicating his life to building schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so this came out two years before I deployed and kind of became like required reading for, for folks deploying on, on nation building missions like the PRT. And so I read that. I um, was part of a, a short month long training mission to the Republic of Mali in Africa, where it was very much a similar kind of nation building, capacity building, working with the locals to, you know, help them help themselves kind of thing. So all of that, yeah, again, a theme of my life, like all these stepping stones that ultimately lead me to making a decision. And those things just, you know, really got me excited about the PRT mission. And I thought, when I deploy, I'm going to take my fate into my own hands and volunteer for this deployment that seems particularly meaningful, you know, not just sitting behind a desk at a main base writing press releases, but actually like, you know, out there doing things. And I was imagining myself like, you know, I'm going to lay the cornerstone on a new schoolhouse and like, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and sing Kumbaya and, and all of that. Um, so I had a very rose colored, idealistic vision of it all, but was excited to go and do something that I felt was really meaningful. <laughs> you asked about Atterbury. That's okay. Um, 
<laughs> that was the first indication that it was much more complicated than shaking hands, kissing babies, singing Kumbaya. And I, I knew that this was, I was going into a combat environment and you can know that again and then not really understand it even once you're in the midst of it in, in a lot of ways. But Atterbury, they really tried to emphasize that. And, you know, a big part of that training was combat skills. And, you know, I got my Humvee driving license, which like I, I literally have crashed into parked cars before. So that just seems like kind of out of my wheelhouse. Um, and I qualified on multiple weapons and qualified being a very generous term for what I was doing and got my um, combat life-saving certification. So learned how to apply tourniquets and, you know, relieve a sucking chest wound and all of these skills that, you know, heaven forbid I should ever have to use, but just kind of, you know, hammering home the fact that you, you may have to use them, you have to be prepared, um, even though what I was doing was not a combat mission. Um, very much, you know, culture shock in a lot of ways, but also, again, exciting, like doing something, you know, pretty badass and and um, just that I, I never, you know, thought I would have an opportunity to do. And of course, the undertones of that were, were much more serious. But I think in a lot of ways that didn't hit me during the, the training portion of it. We had to read Three Cups of Tea, which reading your book, I was like, this book ruined like the deployment because like everything they said to do in the book that like which like opened our eyes to what nation building was and was a really good book to read for the type of deployment it went against like with a lot of the like rigidity rigidity and structures that were in place for us especially like as a civil engineer we had like schoolhouses and we got the templates from kabul and that didn't fit this like tiny remote village in Kapisa and we were not allowed to like modify it it had to be this two-story schoolhouse monstrosity that didn't even make sense and like we had read three cups of tea where he talked about like you have to figure out like what they actually need but we didn't have the like flexibility to do what we needed to do and so that was like I I always wondered like why they had us read it because it kind of was made it more discouraging on the deployment knowing like we're going against what we were taught but we have no choice and so yeah yeah there's a lot of a lot of paradoxes like that in military operations and even like it was kind of a running joke with within my PRT and I think I actually started by one of the civil engineers like the the term PRT provincial reconstruction teams originated in in Iraq where they were you know rebuilding after the devastation of the all of the combat there. Right. And they kind of took that model because it had been successful in some ways and tried to overlay it on Afghanistan, which is a very different environment. And this lead civil engineer on our team was like provincial reconstruction team. Like we're not reconstructing anything. Like there's nothing to reconstruct. We're like building from scratch. So yes. even just the very like core of what we're doing doesn't fit where we're doing it. So yeah, a lot of just just weird things that, you know, when you're thrust in the middle of that situation, you have to try to wrap your head around it, but you also can't spend too much time dwelling on it because it'll just like paralyze you. So you just kind of have to power through and just do what they tell you to do. And all of that stuff starts to build up and, and maybe hit you at different points. And then you get home and you have time to reflect on it. And it's like, ah, <laughs> what do I do with all of this mess in my head? That's why I wrote yeah. it up. That's why I like, I would be like, 
We are rebuilding. If you can't see me because you're on audio, I was in air quotes. Like, we are not rebuilding. There is nothing. <laughs> we are building from scratch. I said the same thing. So that's really funny because you were not in Capisa. You were in, now I'm forgetting because I didn't do Back my to notes. <laughs> and so that was also interesting to read about, like, the different regions of Afghanistan and the different, like, protocols even that you guys did because, like, we would never take our body armor off outside the wire, even like in meetings with the governor and like district leaders. We still had our helmets on. I, sometimes we take our helmets off, but we never take like all our body armor off. So it was interesting to hear like when you guys would go off base, you would have your body armor to go to the compound. And then like once you were in like a safe, air quote, safe <laughs> place. I was just like horrified that you guys yeah. did that, but it's like a very different like environment and like rules of, I guess, rules of engagement. And so what was that like experience to like go outside the wire as a woman who women technically were not allowed in combat in 20, 2009, 2010, not until really recently, 2015. So what was that experience like? And dealing with you know a culture where women weren't really given any rights yeah the the most the the place for me where my gender was most evident was in interacting with the locals like on my team i was one of one of seven women on a team of 80 which actually you know is a fairly high ratio in the military in a de deployed environment but i was just kind of like you know one of the crew it was it was a great team everybody really supported and, and protected each other. So I didn't have any you know, glaring issues involving my gender in that context. But when we went off base, I was often the only woman or one of just a couple women. And it was a really weird, kind of highly variable dynamic. Uh, most of the, the locals we met with were men, because as you said, women had still have, unfortunately now have in a lot of ways more restrictions on their, their freedoms and, and liberties. And so most of the, the men in power positions um, are, are those who we met with. And they liked the PRT. Um, and I'm sure you know this intimately uh, with your civil affairs experience, but or civil engineering experience. But they kind of like looked at us with dollar signs in their eyes and like saw all of the potential that we brought in terms of building infrastructure and, you know, building the governor's guest house and building up things for all, all of these leaders that they designated as priorities. So we brought you know, money and development and, and they liked us by virtue of that. So we would go into these meetings where of course there was a lot of skepticism and, and, you know, issues of trust, but overlaying a lot of that was just this excitement to see us. But as men would get closer to our group and recognize me as a woman, their reaction changed. And some of them would like skip right over me and just kind of ignore me. Some, you, you could see the thought process and they're, they're kind of going like, I should probably acknowledge her because she's part of this team that has money. So they would do this like little, you know, chintzy handshake thing and like curt nod. And then some were just like, oh, a woman and really excited. And they would like, you know, hold my hand long enough that it got uncomfortable or they would like, you know, take our pictures when we were off base or... The governor often brought a film crew to events and the women on our team would end up on the news, even if we weren't the focus of, of whatever that event was. 
So it was just this, this very glaring spotlight all the time. And, you know, sometimes it was helpful if I needed attention, the attention was already kind of inherently there. But if I didn't need or want attention, it was also there. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about like the different experiences. We I deployed with another female civil engineer, and I think that really was helpful for us because they didn't have a choice on who they were going to talk to. And I often wonder like what the dynamic would have been like had I been paired up with a male civil engineer. I'm sure they would have not talked to me at all, but they didn't have a choice. They were like... <laughs> there's two women. And the sergeant who was with us was like, talk to them. They're in charge. You can't talk to me. And so it was um, an interesting dynamic. So because I didn't face a lot of challenges in that aspect, but but the local national engineers that we had on our team, they said that because I had an engineering degree, that was like equivalent to like in America being like a doctor. And so they kind of saw that part of like, I was an engineer. I don't know, but it was really interesting. I didn't, I, I was really lucky in that aspect of like not having a lot of challenges. They just would remind us that we were broken because my, the girl who I deployed with, she and I both didn't have kids, but we were married and that's like big no-no in their culture. Oh, wow. You have to get married the first year or the woman's broken. And then, um, yeah. And then we were talking one time to this guy. He had like four wives and 20-something children. We are like, oh, my goodness. And he was like, American women are lazy. <laughs> but it was just like cultural things. And it wasn't like disrespectful. I mean, I guess that could have been. But he, it was just interesting that he was like you don't want to have children. You're so lazy. And so it was just kind of interesting. But overall, I had a good experience in that aspect. But you also like, I feel like throughout the book, you talked about like how you kind of became disenchanted with like the whole deployment and the challenges. And like you came in there gung ho that you're going to change the world and like help people. And then you kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. And even like the simplest thing of like trying to set something up, there were all these like hidden things that you felt like no one told you, not that you felt like no one told you like you need to do X, Y, Z. And so you only did X and then you show up and Y and Z aren't done. And people are like, why didn't you know? And you're like, <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know. And it was also interesting because you were like the PA office essentially for the PRT. You didn't have like a team. We had, three people on our PA team, which I would have had a huge impact. You were I, doing I think the, the rotation after me, they actually built up that, up, that department. Um, yeah. So, and I think that actually is a good illustration of kind of the core of that, that disenfranchisement dynamic that, that you picked up on. Um, so my, my job was public affairs in the Air Force and when I was deployed with the PRT, my job was information operations, which is in a lot of ways in conflict with public affairs. Public affairs, I, I went through you know, several weeks of training with, with the Air Force when I first joined and became a public affairs officer. And they were all about pounding over our heads. We, we only deal in facts. We only share the truth. Like our, our job is not to influence. It's just to share the facts. And information operations is not that clear cut. It involves influence and it has origins in like psychological operations and all of the, the doctrine that we were looking at at training was very much based on a, a kinetic 
model back in the Vietnam era. So, you know, you have one target of your your information campaigns and it's always the enemy. But in Afghanistan, you know, we were we were not just countering insurgent propaganda. Like that was part of it, but we were also working with the local population and trying to inform them of, you know, what was going on in their area, which of course is much more complicated than it sounds because you know, it would take days in a convoy over a, you know, horrible or non-existent road to, to get to some of these outlying areas. And they'd never seen their local government officials. We actually got mistaken for Russians in some of the areas where folks on my team went because they hadn't seen people who looked like us since the Russians were in Afghanistan. So just so many outlying areas and, and just basic geography presented so many challenges in, in and of itself. And then you know, 80% of the population was illiterate. So how do you communicate effectively with, with people other than just talking to them and their whole lives, they've been raised with your know, very specific access to information from their tribal leaders and from their local mosque. And so trying to come in and share new things, of course, it's going to be met with skepticism, confusion, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then just the, the influence element of it in information operations got very quickly, very uncomfortable for me and feeling like, you know, I, I'm here on the ground and I'm seeing what these government officials are doing and, you know, what the U.S. military is doing. And not all of it is sitting right with me, but yet the messages that I'm supposed to be sharing are, you know, in a very simplified way, like Afghan government, good, U.S. good, Taliban bad. Uh, and like, you know, referring everyone to this very prescribed system that the American military wanted to promote. And of course, there were good intentions involved in that, but it, it just, again, was not not as clear cut. And I um, just felt like I wasn't giving people access to the full story. And it's a very complicated story. And I didn't know how to sum that up in a soundbite. So just a lot of, again, not knowing what I was getting myself into and feeling very, very confused and, and overwhelmed by it all. Yeah. I mean, you talked about so many things because like, I mean, even talking about, like, how you're a PA officer and then your job is, like, IO, which in it's, like, opposite of what you're doing. And it was kind of, like, the same aspect of, like, civil engineering. Like, as a civil engineer, we're trained to, like, go out and do inspections. But then when we were in Afghanistan, we were supposed to do, like, you know, all these additional things that weren't related to engineering. And we had, like, very little training on how to do them. And luckily we had a team, but, like, you were the only... Yeah, we had three people and you had one person. So that's just, like, crazy. And I know... And I think they got people as the year went on because I don't... We didn't start with three people. So we only had one person and wow. she was working all the time. Mm -hmm. And then... They brought in an enlisted person to do like photography and that sort of thing. And then they brought in another officer. And so they recognized that need for like more people because she was doing so much to try and do like the PA side for the PRT and then the IO side. And I didn't realize how hard her job was until you just explained it. I'm like, oh my goodness. So. Well, and it's one of those things like, you know, with, with CE, uh, you have some kind of tangible result of what you're doing. IO right. is also, you know, theoretical and, and psychological. And, and like, you know, I just had a conversation with someone. How do I measure the effects of that? It's all just very vague. And that that's hard too, as a young idealist going into a situation and wanting to see, 
that I made an impact. How do you know? And, and in a lot of ways, the, the military didn't have good ways of measuring any of those types of impacts, or they would measure right. like, you know, how many schools did we build? How much money did we spend? But, you know, not are those schools being utilized and are there trained teachers and people trained to maintain those school buildings? And so all of these, you know, actual sustainable practices were not necessarily being accounted for in it. And, and all of that just, you know, as the deployment went on, I was getting more of this information and I'm sure you have a million stories that you could share too, but like our, our CE team would get back from reviewing a site and they would say, yeah, we like kicked a wall over. <laughs> it just was so shoddily built and they were you know, adding water to the concrete mix to, to save money. And it just is not a legitimate building. <laughs> And those those type of things, you know, were, were the stories that were like eating at me, but were certainly not the things that I was writing press releases about. Or they put water in the generator because it's liquid. Oh, gosh. It'll work just like fuel. And they're like, we need a new generator. This one's broken. And I'm like, but if we give you another one, you're just going to put water in it and it's still going to be broken. So like, I mean, that's the kind of like things that we were facing. Like they didn't know what liquid to put in a generator to make it work they thought it just needed to be liquid and they didn't have gas so they put water in it and then obviously you don't put gas or water in a um in an engine that's that's not good and it's ruined and like and that's like a basic thing that you don't think about like you wouldn't tell someone in america like here's your engine your generator don't put water in it but like in Afghanistan, you do have to say, here's your generator. You can only put fuel in it and like, and then the maintenance piece. And like, we had buildings falling apart because they were like, but it's concrete. And we're like, it doesn't matter. You still have to like do maintenance. You have to make sure that you do all these things. But they had no concept because they were living in mud huts. Mm -hmm. And we're like, just because it's not mud and it's a concrete building there's still maintenance that you have to do and they didn't have any like they didn't understand that there needed to be maintenance or even like what maintenance to do and like how do you explain to people how to do that when they don't have like the basic concept and so it's really challenging really challenging yeah and you kind of I mean I at least went into that situation just assuming a basic level of knowledge that yeah wasn't there and i we would encounter similar things in conversations with farmers where, you know, we had an, an agricultural development team um, co-located with us at, at the base and they would try to work with, uh, in this very agrarian society, try to work with the farmers to, you know, rotate in crops and, you know, have a surplus so that they could sell it and, you know, looking into cold storage for how you can ship these things to, you know, to market. And all those concepts were just, just lost on the locals because they were very much focused on how do I feed my family this winter? Like thinking about, you know, making a better life in years is just not even something in their realm of comprehension because they're focused on the very basic needs. And that's, yeah. that's not something that I think we in American society are really prepared to speak to in any kind of meaningful way especially without training or not knowing like like what those challenges are and they were like unique for each different district that you were at it wasn't like you could it's not like you could bring everybody in to one like we did a big two-week training where we were learning the language and then in the night in the evenings we had 
cultural training and I learned like all this stuff about Afghanistan and their history, but it was like broad brushstrokes. It wasn't like what Capisa's history was. I don't know like Capisa's history. I don't know like how it was formed. I mean, I know about like what type of people like there's Tajik in the north and they're Pashtun in the south, but like, you know, I don't know like all the different details I know need to know going into each place that we were visiting and it made it really hard. It's impossible to. You have to take like a, a graduate level course in, you know, every the dynamics of every different ethnic group in order to really fully yeah. be prepared for that. And that's just not realistic. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about coming home from Afghanistan because I think we talked a lot about the PRT and we could talk about it forever. So let's shift focus to coming home and what that experience was like. Yeah. So all of this just confusion and frustration and weirdness had just been kind of building in my brain for the nine months of the deployment. And I kind of very naively figured I'll get home once, you know, once I'm out of Afghanistan, all those feelings and thoughts will just go away. Like I'll be out of the environment. So it'll get better. And of course, that didn't happen. And I was, was struggling with just, you know, getting back into air quote, normal life. And, you know, what does that even mean? Normal life? I mean, I, I was ultimately just to fast forward a little bit. When I left the military, I was diagnosed with chronic adjustment disorder, which at the time I, I kind of categorized it as like PTSD light. I didn't quite check all the boxes to qualify for PTSD. But the, the actual definition of chronic adjustment disorder has something to do with like an, a reaction to a situation that is more intense. The reaction itself is more intense than one could expect from that situation. But like what I, I have a hard time with that because what, what reaction are you supposed to have when you've been in a war zone for, you know, the better part of a year and then you you're thrust back into your normal life and it, it just, it is something that doesn't compute. And, and I think at least when I was in, that was not something that the military dealt with very well. We had two weeks of, of what they called reconstitution leave, where we could hang out in the local area, spend time with family, kind of, you know, let yourself settle, sleep. But for the most part, I was just like wandering around the mall and just like pondering all of this and trying to wrap my head around it. And I ultimately a few months down the road, self-referred to the, the mental health clinic because I just felt like I, I couldn't stop thinking about all this stuff and I didn't know what it meant. And I felt very guilty for struggling because I hadn't had one of those more stereotypical trauma-inducing experiences. Or I hadn't, I had never fired either of the two weapons that I carried and I had never been in a combat situation and no one on my team was seriously injured or killed. So I, those were the things that I, I thought warranted seeking mental health care or, or struggling. And of course now, you know, so far removed from the experience and having basically given myself like, you know, 12 years of therapy as I was writing my memoir, of course you're going to feel unsettled after an experience like that because it's just such a vastly different environment and you're always on guard. And even if nothing bad ever happens, there's always the threat that something bad will happen. That changes your brain chemistry. It literally changes your brain chemistry because it activates that that fight or flight response that we biologically have ingrained in us. I didn't take the time to ponder all of that at the time, but I just, yeah, I, I, I felt very, very unsettled and I was struggling. And at this special operations base where people were deploying, you know, on a monthly basis, I felt isolated in my struggling. 
and I reflected on my mom getting back from Desert Storm. And all I saw was her just jumping back into her role as, as a mother of three and a, a wife and, you know, cook to order chef and taxi driver and all these things that we expect mothers to do. And I never saw her struggle with that role. So I, I just felt like, you know, I must be, I must be weak or, you know, lesser than all of these other people to not be able to handle it well. And it took quite a bit of therapy, like actual therapy, not just my, my own self therapy and writing. And then eventually talking to my mom that, that did kind of open the door to exploration beyond that, th those initial conceptions about it and, and understanding that, that my mom had felt similar things with her deployment and that, that feeling of, you know, what am I here for? And then, you know, leaving and feeling like she'd left a job half complete and, and those fears about something potentially happening in any given moment. And, and all of that had weighed on her in ways I hadn't recognized and that she had you know, tried to hide because that was what she thought the expectation was for her to do as well. Yeah, there's so many things that I could like talk about because I recently realized that if I'm in unexpected traffic, we got stuck um, going over a pass in Kabul and like coming over the mountains and we we did it on a Friday night, which was not a good idea. It's like LA, there's traffic. <laughs> and we got stuck in traffic and whenever, and it was unexpected. And we were very worried because we were stuck and we couldn't move. And so for like that hour, two hours that we were like waiting through the traffic, we were worried we were going to get attacked. And recently we went to Disneyland and we were unexpectedly in like crazy traffic to get into the parking structure and like my mind went like I couldn't hear the radio anymore I couldn't and I realized like even though nothing happened my body remembered like unexpected traffic and it just like and the stress and like all that came and I just like freaked out and kind of like had I had a mini panic attack and my husband's like why are you freaking out so much and I'm like a few days later, I was like, I know why I was freaking out. <laughs> and it's interesting because like I live in LA, so there's a lot of traffic, but like if there's traffic and I know that it's going to be there, I can either prepare myself beforehand or if it's not unexpected, it doesn't bother me as much. And now that I know that's something, I'm able to like use tools um, for like meditation and grounding. But it was interesting because like it was that moment and I was like, it was so weird. Like I couldn't hear that we were listening to a podcast and I could not hear what the podcast was saying. And like you'd think like you were just stuck in traffic. Nothing happened. Like that's not a big deal. But your body and your mind remember things even if you like can't. And that's one of the things that's a trigger and like just because nothing happened didn't mean that you weren't on edge and that your body was like bracing for something to happen and it doesn't know like your body just remembers how you feel and when you feel a certain way it brings you like right back there and I've been home for over 10 years and that happened this past year and it was like crazy that that's one of the things that and it, and all the other things like there's so many other things that happen and how we think I was the same way I'll just go home everything will be okay I'll just put it in a box and don't have to think about it again and it that didn't that didn't work Turns out that doesn't work <laughs> yeah it is it is kind of crazy how how those things just imprint on your body and your brain and I've, I've had those experiences too where just all of a sudden it's like you time travel back to that that specific incident it's yeah, it's, it's pretty bonkers. 
Or even like some helicopters don't sound like the helicopters in Afghanistan, but then other ones do. And it's like, it's so weird. It's like, or a sound or like all these things. So we're going to run out of time because I keep talking. But can you talk about like why, I think you alluded a little bit to it, but why you decided to write your book and restate the title so that people can go and get it. And then the fine art of camouflage. I'm playing Vanna White and holding it up in front of my camera. And I started writing it not with the vision of it ultimately becoming a book, but simply because I needed to process what I was feeling. And writing is a way that I've always done that, you know, from that really horrible poetry that I was writing in, in high school and college to journaling. And just as, as I wrote essays in school, it was always a way that I was, you know, working through something or trying to understand the world. And that's just always what I've gravitated towards. So my initial writing was really just purging everything in me and trying to sort through it somehow. And I kind of, you know, directionless in a sense, when I left the military, ended up applying for MFA programs, master's in fine arts programs in writing, and ended up attending one in Boston. And that was where all of this purging and just blah stuff started to shape itself into my story, but also my story in a way that other people could access the the feelings and emotions and and hopefully relate to it. And it's always encouraging to talk to people like yourself who say that you do. And that's, you know, what I think the, the power of stories is not just, of course, there's it's so important to for each of us individually to share our stories to, you know, make meaning of of our lives and our feelings, kind of like a self validation in a lot of ways. And then there's another power where other people can then interact with those stories and find meaning in them. And I, I don't think I could have gotten there without a, a lot of help and support. Um, as you know, writing a book is a very lonely endeavor. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely took some time, it took a good 12 years before it got to the point of being published. But I, I think that time was necessary for it to, to be more than just like, you know, a, a woe is me kind of initial vomiting of, of thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I thought it was really good. And I loved your authenticity because you are very vulnerable in sharing like the really hard things and the things that you were thinking in your mind in a way that like it's not easy to do like that's what you're supposed to do a memoir but it doesn't mean it's easy <laughs> I've written pieces and people are like you're still holding back I'm like I'm pretty sure everything's on the page <laughs> and they're like no it's not and so um, I, I felt like you did a really good job of like being open and sharing and talking about like the real hardship of like not only the deployment but coming home and like getting help and 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 finding healing and and being able to move forward and we still have you know we still have things that pop up that we don't expect but you have tools from like therapy and I just I loved reading the book it was really hard to read because I really resonated with it and so it wasn't like a fun, exciting book, <laughs> but it was it was really important to read and I think really valuable, especially for someone who either hasn't deployed or is thinking of joining the military and wants to learn more about like what the experiences are like from other people. I thought it was really it was just really honest and talking about the experience in a way that 
is needed. I think people need to hear these stories in this way instead of like the rah, rah, the military is great. And I think the military has a lot of great qualities, but there's also a lot of things that they need to work on. And they are getting better, with, especially with mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for for taking the time to read it. And I I, I was like, when when I'll like sign a copy for someone, my my instinct is always to be like, I hope you enjoy it. But that seems like a weird like thing to say book. for for a book dealing with the heavy content. So I've I've kind of the the line that I've landed on is like, I hope you find it meaningful. So there I'm glad you that you did. So I always like to end the interview with what advice would you give to someone who's considering joining the military? So what would you say? That's a great question. Um, read my book. <laughs> but in all, in all seriousness, read read and just consume all the information you can. Um, that's the advice I would give myself if I were to go back in time and be at that juncture of my life. Uh, it's the advice that I will you know, give my daughters someday if they are thinking about making that decision, just, you know, don't rely on what you're hearing from the media or Hollywood or your recruiter. Talk to people who have served and who are serving and read all the literature you can get your hands on, watch documentaries, just try to get access to as much information as possible and take the time to reflect on it and ask those difficult questions of yourself and of the institution of the military and of us as an American society before you're like reflecting on how you played a role in how those, those decisions play out. Um, so try to try to head it off and, and have those, those conversations ahead of time, which I realize is a lot easier said than done, especially when you're, you know, 17, 18 years old. I don't know that I would have taken my own advice, but um, that's the advice I have to give. I think I have like very similar since I wrote a book for girls joining the military with all the advice that I wish I knew when I was joining. Yep. So <laughs> I tried I tried to do that too. I was like, Are you I should have asked more questions. I should have done more research. I should have thought about this, this and this. And so yeah. So I that really resonates with me because that's that's why I wrote a book. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but also some lessons you just have to learn yourself, even if it's the hard way. Yeah. And like we said at the beginning, like every story of this might have been before I hit record, but every story of every <laughs> veteran is so unique and different. And like there's no way to like be fully prepared for what's to come. And so getting prepared is important, but it's not going to prevent you from having something happen that might be unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with like just how much goes on on any given day in the, in the world right now. You, you just never know what your experience is going to be shaped by. Thank you so much for not only being a guest on the podcast, for, for writing your book and sharing it with all of us, because it is, it's so important to share those stories and for people to read them. So I highly recommend you go out and get your copy. The link is in the show notes so that you can order it easily. And thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Amanda.